Father, as we look toward you, we thank you for safety. We thank you for the things that you give to us. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have displayed, that you have covered us with. We are so grateful for that. And we ask that you would, in the hearer and in the speaker, allow your spirit to move freely. We pray through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So it was about a week ago during a fundraiser that President Biden made some comments that were not intended to go public. He said that Putin was not joking when he talks about the use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological chemical weapons. We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis, Biden said. And that, the threat is real because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. Now, even though I was only eight years old during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it left an indelible impression on my mind as well as my emotions. The first drawing that I can remember ever making uh, was of my mom and my two brothers and myself inside an underground bunker. Biden's words stir up emotions for people of a certain age, should stir up some for all of us. SPF 4 million, anyone? However, when I, when I combined the training I underwent with tactical nukes and the training and experience I've had as a counselor and a therapist, I marvel, honestly, that we have not yet lit up the skies. To say that keeping us from destroying ourselves is difficult would be an understatement. I mean, we hear these things almost daily. They bombard us. And rightfully, they think uh, they cause us who are believers uh, to think that the days in which we live are the last days. With rampant crime, people searching and screeching for a justice that is not justice, and the prospect of war that looms over us, so many today are asking with great sincerity, are these indeed the last days? Our passage today in 2 Timothy is one of many passages that have been taken to refer to the last days before the coming of the Lord. But is that what Paul means? Paul wrote, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, without control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now that is a 
list of horrid characteristics. But he goes on. For among them, those people with these characteristics, for among them, uh, there are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres uh, opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was to those two men. Many people uh, take the phrase that I just read, these last days, to refer to the time immediately before Christ's return. But as we look into the text and other portions of the Bible, what we're going to find is, at least in this case, that is not the case. We learn that the biblical phrase refers to the whole period of time between the first coming of the Lord and his second coming. In other words, for 2,000 years, we have been living in the last days. First clue, Acts 2, 17. On the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted Joel. In the last days, God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Then Peter said this. He said, was, that was the beginning to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, almost 2,000 years ago. So it's already begun. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 reads, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So it is clear from that that the last days is a period that's grown now to be 2,000 years. So what we learn, though, is that in these last days, that is from the time of Christ until today, there are repetitive cycles. There are cycles of distress. There are cycles of stress. There are cycles of peril. And when all the conditions he describes are, are present. And, and when you look back over human history, you have periods also of relative peace. Relative, I say. Relative peace, prosperity, then they're interrupted by these terrible times of stress and agony. So these words are not necessarily a prediction of the last days for the church. Rather, they are a recognition that the cycle of days like this will keep coming, will intensify, and ultimately one of these cycles that we're in will be the, the last one. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, are we living in that last cycle? It's difficult to say and impossible to say with certainty, but I can tell you now that I believe that we are. Uh, and the reason I believe that we are is because since about 1960, uh, for the first time in the history of mankind, uh, we now have the power to destroy the entire human race. 
And God will not allow that to happen, but we have the power to make it so. Russia has made the lar largest nuclear weapon ever. Thankfully, it's impractical and so can't be actually put in use, but let me tell you about it. it, it it's 100 megatons. To have some notion of the power of that bomb, I want to use our geography. If a single 100 megaton bomb were detonated in downtown Houston, the blast radius of total destruction, of total death, would be as far as where we're standing here in Sugarland. It would destroy Cyprus, it would destroy Spring, Crosby, League City, all of those places would simply be gone. And then outside of that radius, for miles and miles, people would suffer death from injury and shock, radiation, heat exposure. In fact, exposed people in El Campo, Brenham, Conroe, and close to the outskirts of Beaumont, if they're exposed when the blast goes off, would suffer third degree burns. And knowing this outcome, people, this is not a mystery. Knowing this outcome since 1962, before that actually, but it led to the military doctrine of mutual assured destruction. Short, mad, because you would have to be mad to do that. A national security policy that argues that the full-scale use of nuclear weapons by an attacker on a nuclear-armed defender with second-strike capabilities, with, which we have, would cause the complete annihilation of both attacker and defender. Thus, mad. Are we in the last cycle to come in history before our Lord returns? I don't know. My prayer is that the peril may disperse. My prayer is that the sun may once again break through, that some degree of sanity and peace and prosperity may yet return again to the world before the end. I mean, my desire is for the Lord to return, but not at the cost of the souls who would otherwise have been saved. The Lord knows when that task is done, not me. But Paul wanted Timothy and us to clearly know something. He says, understand this, that these will be dangerous times, dangerous times. Now for Paul, and if you know his history to say that, you know he's saying a lot. Times of great stress, times when our faith will be pushed to the limit of its endurance, when we'll be under attack, when we'll be under threat. Paul tells us that these times of stress are caused by two major dynamics. The first dynamic we find in verse 5, holding the form of religion but denying the power of it. Avoid such people. So Paul knows that the primary cause of the repetitive cycle of stress and danger is holding to a form of religion but actually that not changing anything on the inside, on the heart, and having no power to overcome evil in their lives. Religion 
without a basis. That's the bottom line. But we must not think of religion completely, entirely in the way that we may be thinking of it now in terms of one of the major faith groups in the world. It's deeper than that. To develop a firmer grasp on this, in fact, we have to see what's happening politically around us. We have to see that what's happening political is actually religious. Augustine, or Augustine of Hippo, wrote this in the fourth century. Deeply felt political conviction should be understood as redirected religion. I mean, look at the entire notion of wokeness. They unabashedly take notions such as original sin, atonement, ritual, and excommunication, and make them entirely political. You know this. I mean, just to ask yourself the questions. In wokeness, what is the original sin? You know what it is. How do you atone for that sin? You also know the answer. What is the mandatory ritual for wokeness? How is excommunication carried out? We know the answers to these questions. And most of you know the wokeness doctrine because you're bombarded with it every day. We must understand this as Paul did, holding the form of religion but denying the power. You see, people are primarily a religious people. But when untethered from God, we drift. What we need to think about not just simply with wokeness, but with many other areas in the political sphere as well as the religious sphere, we need to think cut flower society. Will Herberg, a communist turned conservative, wrote this. The attempt made in recent decades by secularist thinkers to disengage the moral principles of Western civilization from their scripturally based religious context in the assurance that they could live a life of their own humanistic ethics has resulted in our cut flower culture. Cut flowers retain their original beauty and fragrance, but only so long as they retain the vitality that they have drawn from the now severed roots. After that is exhausted, they wither and die. So with freedom, brotherhood, justice, and personal dignity, the values that form the moral foundation of our civilization without the life-giving power of the faith out of which they have sprung, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. I mean, these are some amazing words that we need to listen to because what we find out is what the Apostle Paul said, what I read first, is what happens when we cut the flowers from the root. Let's take a closer look. This is an awful list, it's a horrid list, one which we'll go through quickly, but one which we must go through. And that is Paul writing, and, and these are, it's broken up into four categories, 
You can take them as individual items and that's fine. You could also categorize them. The first one flows from that first term, lovers of self. Okay, that's the basic sin of humanity. Self-love, the worship of another God. I mean, that's the vilest form of idolatry. Depriving God of the worship due his name and uh, placing a rival God that is ourself on the throne. A hundred years ago, Jessica North wrote this little jingle. Some of you perhaps have, have memorized it. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate up the sandwiches and I drank the tea. Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. Now, I don't think that was her intent to talk about uh, in the context that I am. But you know, it is an apt description of the way many people live, a completely self-centered, self-focused existence. Now out of this flows the other things on the list. The first and primary expression of self Centeredness is love of money. Why are today people, there are so many who are materialists? It's, it's simple. Once God is displaced, there's nothing but material left. There's nothing but this life left. And therefore, the only thing in this life that can be entertained and engaged in are the pleasures that this life can bring. And so it's a race. It's a fight for money constantly increasing our standard of living, constantly increasing luxury. It's because money indulges us. It replaces God. And instead of using it, as scripture exhorts us to, in terms of generosity and, and giving and helping, we use it on our, ourself. Now, you do have to have resources, but you don't have to have the kind of money I think that most people are angling for in order to thrive. When I think of the missionaries, when they were kicked out of China in the 50s, think, think uh, people, great names, uh, people who had worked in China, John and Betty Stam, Hudson Taylor, uh, everyone said, woe, woe to the church in China, it's not going to last. And yet, the church in China increased many fold through the years of persecution. It's, it's not persecution, listen, it's not persecution that destroys a church, it's prosperity. It's prosperity in the sense of taking that prosperity and using it as a luxury for us as opposed to using it for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. I mean, you just, just think of the churches in Europe, magnificent cathedrals all over the place, open for anybody to attend, but nobody, they're empty. They're literally empty because they've been destroyed by the philosophy of personal peace and affluence. And that has gripped us as well. And I'm hoping for a season at least a season where we can grow out of it. Another uh, word that we come across here, proud, the words uh, boastful. Now, when, when we see boastful, we tend to, to hear someone saying uh, all these magnificent things about themselves and so forth. But 
that's not actually the notion that you have in the Greek context. The Greek term is the notion of a con artist, someone who rolls into town, rolls into your life, and makes big promises to you. And then the intent, though, with those promises is surely just collecting money and taking off in the middle of the night. The word that follows that immediately is arrogant. Now, the Hellenistic Jews, many people in fact, uh, but the Hellenistic Jews in particular, felt that this was the uh, quintessential quality of Satan. That is, this was the thing that marked Satan. And that is that he was arrogant. And arrogance, I heard uh, it once said, is the only disease that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Abusive is the next term. Uh, it's the word in the original is where we get our word blasphemes from. That is words that are pejorative, words that are insulting, words that put people uh, down. That's a manifestation of unhealthy, unwholesome, unchristian spirit, not just within the church, but within the society. And then I told you this was an awful list. Paul's not done. Then there's a second grouping that centers around family life. The first, disobedient to their parents. I mean, the breakdown in the home today is significant. Uh, rebellion against uh, parental authority is high. But it's, this isn't just for the children. This is for the adult children who not simply disobey their parents, but they disrespect their parents in that they don't even listen to them. It's not that their parents are right or wrong or you have to do each what each one says. That's not the point. The point here is that they don't even listen anymore. And, and with that, then Paul links the word ungrateful. Someone who, when they, they don't get their way, they go, they go on and on as if they're the ones that have been robbed of something. It's amazing. The next word, unholy, is a word that means unwillingness to observe even the basic decencies in life. It's, it's flaunting. I could, I could tell you of a person who, whose computer uh, was left someplace. This is what it's talking about. That unholy flaunting of someone's ungodly actions, a kind of shamelessness that takes pleasure almost in shocking you, the deliberate purpose, the, the, the notion of having any shame about something is so far gone that it's done to shock you and to shock me. Followed, uh, following that is this word unloving. This is uh, one of the most awful words in all of scripture. It means, it means lacking in normal affections. That is brutish, that is beastly, cruel. Someone who is mean-spirited and, and, and harmful and, and violent. It's a bitter, unrelenting attitude uh, that nobody can talk to or soften in any way. I need some, some softening right now in terms of this list is just so magnificently bad. Uh, it's hard because we're not done yet. Then the list moves on the areas which touch on interpersonal relationships. The next word is slanderers. Literally, that word means uh, devils, profligates, 
uh, people who are ungovernable. They move and live and breathe only to satisfy their own uh, selfish uh, desires and passions. Then we have these uh, fierce, savage people, haters of good. Uh, you know, haters of good, that was the Lord's charge to the Pharisees. And that's the word, this next word is treacherous. That's the word that was used of Judas to describe the betrayer and then reckless, careless of, of what happens, entering impulsively into things that you should not without fear. And then you have swollen with conceit, which literally means wrapped in smoke. People think of themselves much higher than they, they should, so they, they can't even really see. Now the final group, grouping, and thankfully we're coming to the end of this, is these religious pretensions of these people. Lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, holding the form of religion but denying the power thereof. Now we do not have to guess what the power of Christianity is. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where he writes the word of the cross is the power of God. When the cross has its effect upon you, then you will experience, you will realize the power of God. It's the denial of the word of the cross that constitutes Christianity without Christ, godliness without God, spirituality without the spirit, which is what so many in our world today are trying to do. Now, there's a second factor that's described in verses six through nine. And in that section, the apostle is describing the, the rise of strange notions embracing very confusing concepts and immoral practices. Verses six through eight. For among them are those who make their way to households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses, who will listen to anybody and never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith. What we're talking about is, actually we're not even talking about women here. We're talking about people who are not grounded in the faith. Paul uses women, I believe, as a cultural element because they were uh, largely the ones who were at home while the men were at work. Our society has changed, and uh, so I believe he's just talking about people who have time, uh, but not wisdom. He's talking about men who come in to gain money and resources through lies and through deception. This is not a, a physical thing. This is not about sexual activity. What this is about, capturing uh, and, and holding these people burdened with sins, is about false religion. Now, how do I know that? I know because that's what the text says. In the book of Exodus, we read that when God sent Moses to Pharaoh's court, his brother Aaron did miraculous signs. Now, why? He did that in order to force Pharaoh 
to realize that he was dealing with the one, the true, and the living God. They were not a couple of nobodies in Pharaoh's court. But there were magicians in Pharaoh's court, and while they're not named in the Old Testament, they are named here, Janus and Jambres, and they did miracles just like Aaron did. And, uh, and, and they followed, they tracked with it all the way through. Aaron cast Moses' rod down finally, and it became a snake. These magicians cast their rods down, and they became snakes. But they did it by sleight of hand. I mean, any good magician can pull rabbits out of hats. And these magicians imitated the miracles of God. That kind of corrupt, counterfeit faith is what Paul has in mind. And that's what we run into in times of stress, such as we do today. I mean, so how does Satan do it? How does he get people to swallow cults? How does he get people to swallow political movements? How does he get people to follow Christianity, which is not Christianity? That is, there are many churches who have taken Christ out of the church. How does he do that? Two ways, primarily. The first way is infiltration. In uh, the United States military, defines infiltration as a maneuver in which an attacking force conducts undetected movement through or into an area occupied by enemy forces to occupy a position of advantage while exposing only a small element to enemy de uh, defensive fires. You see, that's what happened. Certain men were infiltrating into the church by going into the homes of people who had nothing better to do, and they were doing that for their own benefit and their own advancement. Into households that were rendered in, uh, vulnerable, and a fascinating statement, vulnerable because of their sense of guilt. When somebody is feeling intense guilt, they will almost believe anything in order to have that guilt alleviated. I could say the same thing about shame as well. Everyone who is a sinner, that includes all of us, cannot escape this. We all, each one of us, have a sense of guilt. We, each one of us at levels, have a sense of shame. And in times of despair, when there are inner tensions, when there is stress, and there are things going on, we have a tendency to listen to false teachers. We have a tendency to lay hold of the promises that they make about what our life is uh, to be. And that is simply not the case. Our hold needs to be laid upon Jesus Christ and him alone. Now the second tactic employed by the enemy is imitation. So Paul says this, catch this, like Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these people will oppose the truth. As the Apostle Paul, he goes on to say in verse 9, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was that of those two men. When the serpent, uh, which Aaron's rod had formed, saw the other two snakes, it ate them. Now, 
This was a visible sign of God's power that he is always more powerful than Satan. The apostle says that this is what will happen. These men may try to do this. There may be people who will fall for it, but they will not ultimately be held. Do not panic, he says to Timothy. Evil has its limit. The devil always overreaches himself. I mean, his very success at winning converts is gonna ultimately live leave people so empty and desperate for some kind of meaning that they will turn, they will turn. We need to be there ready to receive them. So, a few takeaways. First, you will face evil, period. Some of you will face higher levels of evil than others, that is true. But you will all face evil. It's not a question of if, but when. So understand this, that evil's goal is to destroy good. That means you, what you stand for, what you're doing. So don't be surprised at all, because if you accept this fact, then you will not believe, you will not be caught in the trap that everything should go smoothly. Everything does not go smoothly, not by a long shot. How does it help us to do these difficult times? It means that God's not surprised we should either. The world's gonna abandon reason. We already see elements of this where Common sense has left the building. Critical thinking is not to be found. They will abandon reason. And they will act unreasonably. This should not surprise or even frighten us. The Lord knows these things. Second, when the truth is attempted to be silenced by deception, resistance, even persecution, these people will in the process of destroying the good present themselves as good, present themselves as genuine. They are not. They are liars. Uh, David even uh, cried out to God about this one. Sometimes evil occupies authorities that cannot be overturned, at least not initially. Nero was mad, mad, at least many historians think that he was insane. And the church, it was the believers who paid the price for his insanity. Finally, the primary weapon of evil is deception. So, how do we handle that one? It's easy. It's easier than we think. Yes, it is possible to be, to be deceived by someone who's, who lies without conscience. But the way to defeat deception is to speak the truth. The answer is to speak it openly, to refuse to 
tolerate inappropriate or evil secrets, to challenge claims, truth claims that are not found in the Bible, and to not be afraid to speak the truth to the powers of this world. Father, we, uh, this passage uh, by itself is in many ways depressing. It is difficult to see what separating ourselves from your power or those who are separated from your power, meaning the cross, meaning Christ, uh, can turn to such horrid, horrid things. May it never be said of us who believe. May we ever be blooming because we are connected to the root of our faith, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.